The Homance Chronicles. The female equivalent of a bromance. So many poor choices. But so many good types. But so many poor choices. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then, this is the Homance Chronicles, and I'm Sarah. And I'm Nicole. And we have a very interesting guest with us today. He has a really, um, I'll say, transformative story, and we're excited to hear about your journey. So, welcome, author, coach Michael Anthony. Hi, Michael. Hey, it's a pleasure. I appreciate your time. Super grateful. Likewise, likewise. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty excited to uh, understand the moments when you decided, you know, to make some life changes. And I know that um, you've gone through quite a bit of trauma and your background has been in taking your own experiences and applying them and being relatable, relatable to other people. And so... What are you doing currently with uh, Think Unbroken that you want everybody to know, like right off the top? Yeah, you know, Think Unbroken is is about creating a mindset shift and understanding of who you are in the world. You know, we come and especially if you live in Western society and you've been dealt a bad hand or some bad cards or you have any mental health ailments that you deal with you're often labeled as broken. And, and I, I had this moment about three and a half, almost four years ago, laying in bed, middle of the night, can't sleep, just having this reoccurring theme of a, a memory show up of like all of these moments in my life when I've been called broken, whether it'd been in childhood or relationships or by my own parents and caregivers. And just thinking like, that's not how I think. That's not how I think. And then just like through serendipity, it created itself, right? Um, and it's very much about how do I take the tools, the understanding, the, the practical side of, of the research of mental health and healing trauma and ultimately putting yourself in this position to become the hero of your own story. How do I decipher that down and distill it down into this thing that's palatable for the world? And, and what I do today is I, I coach and mentor people around the world, athletes, celebrities, moms, dads, teachers, cousins, everybody in between. Um, I'm an author, I'm a speaker, I'm an advocate for this whole thing, this movement about, um, you know, healing trauma that you're not culpable for. And, and that's what Think Unbroken is. How can we ultimately take our power back? I love yeah. that. Yeah, that's that is what... awesome. I have a question for you. Sorry. Can I ask really quickly? Because he said you have a very large spectrum of people you've helped. Would you say that there's like a, maybe a pattern or like a common trait? And if you discover it later on we can keep going but would you say that there's like a common thing that like basically it's like we're all just human at the end of the day yeah i mean look trauma doesn't give a shit if you're rich poor black white male female in between whatever the hell it is it doesn't matter we all have been impacted by negative things in our lives and the the one core thing i will tell you that probably sits the most true about the people that i work with is that those are people who are willing to take control over their life 
you know, because for so, for so many of us, and look, I'm included in this boat, so I am not free of this sin, but I spent a long time living in what I call the vortex, that place of negative self-talk and self-doubt and letting other people dictate my life and not showing up for myself. And, and literally at one point sitting on my bed, 11 o'clock in the morning, like every other fucking morning, weighing 350 pounds, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, eating chocolate cake and watching the CrossFit games and being like, what is happening with my life? This is true. Don't the irony. Me, and, the and irony like, there. It's not irony. It's <laughs> lack of responsibility. The irony, the irony in it is that it took me till rock bottom to create change, even though I knew that I needed to create change for way longer before that moment. And, and that's what it is like the, the acknowledgement of the acceptance that you have to be willing to take control of your life. That's a scary thing. Yeah. It's a, it's really hard to uh, accept all of the things about yourself that are unpalatable. And there's a difference between the fact that you are a victim and maybe have victim mentality and you know, you don't want to take away anyone's life experiences because if they've gone through trauma, then more than likely you are a victim. But how do you get out of that? Like this was done to me and, you know, that kind of circle where you're, you just can't stop thinking about the fact that like the world's against you. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying like being defeated. How do you conquer feeling? Like the real talk, the, the secret that most people aren't going to tell you is that the world is against you. The world <laughs> doesn't give a shit about you. Like realistically, think about it. There are almost 8 billion people on planet Earth, right? Everyone has so many things going. And, and yet we fight this idea that the world is supposed to give me, give me, give me, give me. Now, look, that's not me with like this shade of darkness behind me where I'm like, I hate the world and the universe. That's not true. I love the world. I love the universe. I love the people I'm around. And I, I feel like I'm very empathetic and sympathetic human being. But the reality is, okay, two parts. One, one of the hardest things that we will ever come to understand about ourselves is we are not culpable for the things that we cannot possibly be responsible for. Meaning that if you were four, seven, nine, 12, 14, 17, whatever, homeless, beaten, starved, hidden, hurt, all of those things by the people who were supposed to take care of you, that's not on you. And that's a really hard thing to digest because we get shrouded in guilt and shame and secrecy in our youth. And we're told this is the person that you have to be. Don't you dare try to step outside of this box. And a lot of people are impacted by trauma and abuse and have to come to the realization that it's not their responsibility. You know, I always come back in in my own mind to that moment in Goodwill Hunting where it's Will having the final understanding of it's not his fault. Right. And that's a moment that we all have to be able to tap into with ourselves to recognize that it's not our fault when really bad shit happens to us. Now, that said, the unfortunate backside of this is that you are responsible for everything that happens from this moment forward. If your life is a disaster, i.e. like my life was a decade ago, it is on you to fix it. It sucks to have to clean up other people's garbage out of your front lawn. But guess what? It's your front lawn. So what are you going to do? Step over it every day and fucking pretend it's not there? That's easy because then it will just compound and then there'll be just fucking garbage dump everywhere. Or are you going to go and clean it up and do the work and do the hard thing and the most uncomfortable thing about life? And that's creating change. And so it's difficult. And I don't think there's an easy solution or answer to any of this, but you know, in, in accepting 
that you have to be accountable for yourself. There's also a sense of removing yourself from responsibility of things that are not your fault. Yeah. And, you know, your story is very inspiring. It sounds like you had an immense amount of garbage on your front lawn. <laughs> I would say something like that. Maybe a, you know, two ton truck full. No big deal. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> so, um, I think that a lot of people can probably relate to not having both parents in the home or having, um, a third party in the home somehow that is an extended family member or a step parent or whatever. And so how old were you when you started realizing like this, this life might not be normal or like this isn't ideal or going down yeah. that path? You know what might be really helpful here is if I gave you the elevator pitch, right? Sure. Um, I, so I grew up in Indianapolis. My mother was a drug addict and alcoholic. Uh, by the time that I was four, she actually cut my index, my right index finger off. Um, that kind of gives you baseline of abuse, right? When I was six, she married my stepfather, the, the most incredibly abusive person you could ever imagine. I mean, he would literally kick the shit out of my brothers and I all the time. Um, this was all while we're growing up in the Mormon church. And most of our food, most of our clothing is coming from the church because we are impoverished. Our water is getting cut off. Our electricity is getting cut off. We've been evicted multiple times. By the time I was 10, I was constantly homeless. I lived with like 30 different people from the Mormon church in the course of two years. By the time I'm 12, my grandmother adopts me and you'd be like, oh yeah, God sinned. Well, I'm biracial, black and white. My grandmother's an old racist white lady from a town in Tennessee you have never heard of and thus insert identity crisis. And by the time I'm 13, I'm getting high every day. I start getting into drinking. And the juxtaposition of that is like, I'm living in this racist household while going to a predominantly black high school and being in the midst of poverty at scales in which I was breaking into houses, stealing cars, running with guns, selling drugs, doing whatever I had to do to survive. And by the time that I was 18, after being expelled and put into a last chance program and then not graduating high school on time, I was like, there has to be a solution for this thing, for poverty, for abuse, for chaos. And I'm like, oh, it's got to be money because that's clearly the thing that's been missing in all of this. And I said, all right, the only way this is going to work is I have to do it legally. My best friends were being murdered. My friends were in prison. Same with family members. And I was looking at this has to be done in a way in which I'm not going to end up getting caught one day. And so I decide I'm going to figure out how to navigate corporate America. By the time I'm 21, I'm working for a fortune 50 company making a hundred thousand dollars a year. That's impossible. Nobody does that. Right. And, and I find that exacerbating the chaos of my life, more drinking, more drugs, more women, more out of control, everything till ultimately right around the time I'm having this chocolate cake and CrossFit games moment, I have a complete and utter breakdown to answer your question. And I think it's a really poignant and great question. I knew I knew something in my life was not right. I knew, like you just know, because being in my home was the scariest place on planet earth. Like I loathed the moment I had to leave school. I loathed the moment I had to leave a friend's house or the boy scouts or even church, because at least in those public settings, I was safe. And being in all of these different families' homes, as I was a part of the, the church and being homeless, 
you know, you see the good and bad in people. And I will tell you this, there's many good people as there are bad people in this organization, right? And and I noticed something in these moments. It's like these some of these kids, they could have a conversation or talk back or make a mistake and not get thrown into a wall or slammed into a table. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, how is this a thing? Like, I don't get this. And so subconsciously, or maybe even consciously, I don't really know because I was a child, I knew that something wasn't copacetic. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just the instability of how much you bounced around makes you, you know, not be able to develop emotional connections and have relationships with people. And then to go like hurling into a hundred thousand dollar salary at 21, even if you came from a perfect background, I feel like you could go sideways real quick. <laughs> oh, yeah. So <laughs> I'm just like envisioning Wolf of Wall Street. Just it's exactly what it was like. I spent $3,000 in a strip club in one night at a tw as 24, just being complete moron, like not even recognizing how stupid that is, right? Because, you know, I, I came from poverty. Our, our clothes came from the part of the goodwill that they throw in the trash. And so now I have like money for the first, it was insanity. And, and now I look at those moments and I'm like, well, I'm glad that I had a lot of them, but a lot of them were very stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, could you maybe point to like one, like really stupid thing that you did and you don't have to talk all the way through it, but like one really stupid thing that you did that was just like another piece of that. Maybe I should change what I'm doing, you know, like, uh, no, just kidding. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Well, you know, that happened all the time. And, you know, the, I think the one that comes to mind immediately is getting caught selling drugs at school. I mean, you talk about a stupid fucking moment. Who does that? But like, I was desperate. I needed money. And I knew that kids at school would buy drugs. And so that's what I did. And the only reason I'll tell you right now, literally the only reason that I'm not in a totally different position in my life at this moment is because, all right, so it is my sophomore year of high school and I'm just selling joints. It's not like I'm selling crack, right? Not then anyway. <laughs> and I had, I had this kid come up and like, I sell him a joint and he's like screaming across the football stadium. Cause we're back, you know, hidden behind there. Where all the stoner kids hang out. And um, he's like, does anybody have a lighter? And, and it did not even dawn on me that like, that would be problematic. So minute and a half goes by no lighter like grace of god if you will spirit universe whatever you call it mm -hmm. fucking cop comes around the corner and at my high school we had real cops he comes around the corner gun drawn put your hands in the air what's going on i smell marijuana and i'm like first off you don't because we don't have a lighter um and the second like he so he had to go up to this fence on the side of the the school to be able to get into the stadium so he's on the outside of this fence and he has to unlock it with a key. And I had three joints in my hand. And the second he turned his head, I threw them as hard as humanly possible. And they're joints. It's not like they went further than seven feet, but far enough that he couldn't pin it on us. Like when we're in the office and they're independently interrogating us and they're like, which one of you owns these? And I'm like, I don't know, man. They were probably just there. And you know, the worst thing that happened to me in that moment is I got expelled, <laughs> right? I didn't go to prison that day. So, you know, but that didn't stop that didn't end it like that was just kind of like okay I'll be more careful next time if it weren't for literally watching my friends get murdered and go to prison and my best friend going to jail for seven years at that point 
Um, I don't know that I would have changed, but I was just, I was seeking something and I just didn't know how to get it other than the way I was doing it. Cause that's how, that's where I came from. Right. So like what now, like that was in your what teens, let's say mm-hmm. what happened. Was there anything that happened in like your adult corporate life where you were just like, wow, I'm an idiot, but I'm going to keep yeah, doing it. Like 18 through 26. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Where do you want me to start? You know, I, I think about my, my life was predicated on how high I could get, how drunk I could get, how many women I could be with, how many cars I could own, how many clothes I could have. And like, you know, looking at that, that time frame in my life, you know, it was about excess. My friends and I, but to, to work for this company, there were a handful of us that were in our early, early and mid twenties. And we had unlimited resources, which is effectively limited resources when you're that young. And we were living paycheck to paycheck, right? We were just going crazy. And like, I would have these moments where we would go to lunch and just get shit faced drunk and go back to work and make money. And it was like Wolf of Wall Street. I can't tell you what company I worked for because I don't want to get sued, but it was very much like that. And like everybody just like turned an eye and the people we worked with, they were getting DUIs every weekend and they were getting arrested all the time. And I was wondering, like, were you yeah. From your job or were y'all just fucking around together yeah no it was chaos like we would go there was this bar in town <laughs> that we loved and we would just go rent it out and spend ten thousand dollars a night and like but like that was what it was and for me what i didn't understand then what i understand now all of that was about trying to hide from the reality like you don't get to 350 pounds without a lot of fucking effort. Right. And I was thinking about like, everything was about hide from it, hide from it, hide from it, like running from the truth of the reality that trauma had impacted my life in such a detrimental way that I was consuming myself physically and metaphorically from the inside out. And in these moments, you know, it was always like tomorrow I'll change, tomorrow I'll change, tomorrow I'll change. And, and it just never happened until I came to this total and utter breakdown in which it became very abundantly clear to me that either I needed to change in that moment or I was going to die. And then I started the process because like, really, I'm not joking. 18 through 26 was chaos. Like, I can't even explain it. Like, I, I'm probably going to die young because of the damage that I did to my body during that time. You know, sleepless nights, staying up all night doing drugs, like hanging out with the wrong people, flying back and forth to Vegas all the time. Like, just stuff like people don't do. And Well, <laughs> and, have you and, watched like, the just... Tiger Woods documentary? Because they still <laughs> do. I mean, I'm not going to say I've never hung out with Tiger Woods, but like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. He's on another <laughs> But, but my point is like, think about that. That's actually a really great point. You know, Tiger was trying to fill this gap left from his father and what seems like probably this incredibly controlling, abusive relationship and trying to figure out himself in the world and, and not understanding, which was very much my experience, not understanding that was okay to love yourself for who you are and not have to live up to the expectations of other people. And, and that didn't come for a long time. Can okay, I have a question. the The day you decided to change, you decided, all right, I'm gonna change. What what like the the next morning when you woke up, and that was really the time for you to make the change. Did you have a moment of pause? Like, am I really doing this, or did you well, just go? 
you know what it was is i mean how many times are you going to tell yourself the same fucking story before you do something about it and and i really kind of was at this rock bottom moment in my life where where i was thinking about the fact that i was going to be dead in a year if something didn't become different you know i, I was hurting in this really intense way and you know then i couldn't name it right i didn't have the words to step into it the only thing that i knew is that when i was 9 years old one of the summers, August, Indiana summer, probably very much like your summers are very hot and humid and gross and intense. We didn't have electricity. So we had no air conditioner. We were, we were in this two bedroom house and we had no running water because it had gotten shut off again. And I was going next door to the neighbor's house with a bucket and stealing water from the spigot on the outside of their house so that I had drinking water, so that we had water to use in our home. Like, think about this. The fact that you could be so poor in a country like America that you couldn't have running water, that says a lot about that environment. And when I was in that moment, like I remember distinctly, like it was yesterday, being like, I'm never going to let my life be dictated by this thing. Now the words were different as a child, but it was very much like, I'm going to figure out how to make my life my life when I'm a grown up. I the only thing I ever wanted to do when I was a kid was be a grown up. That's it. That's the yeah. only thing because I was like I was gonna say safe there. I right? feel like that's a common thread with a lot of people who experience a traumatic childhood is that they really quickly don't experience their childhood because they're just wanting to grow up and they're being forced to deal with real life scenarios like getting water for themselves and it's it's so troubling now me like as an adult like going man i really didn't like have uh, as much of a youthful childhood as I should have, like I was in so many adult situations mm -hmm. and now you're, and then I think you go through those phases in your twenties where now you have freedom and you can have fun and you can do things. And now, you know, you're in your thirties or forties and going, wait, what the fuck happened? <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. And, and like, it was that moment, like stealing that water, having that, that thing that I said to myself, that was ultimately the catalyst for decades later being like, okay, you, you really have to own the promise that you made yourself. And, and that's an uncomfortable place to be, to look at your life and to sit with it. And, and I recall like multiple therapy sessions early on as a kid and just being like, nothing about this is interesting to me. I hate being a child. I don't want anything to do with this. And it, and it really kind of defining, I grew up young. Like I learned how to cook when I was seven years old, because if I didn't, no one was going to feed my brothers and I, Right. You know, I, I learned how to hustle young. I started cutting people's lawns at nine years old and stealing flowers from their own gardens and selling them back to them. And like, you know, when you're, when you're in school, they have you do those candy fundraisers. And I would just go steal a whole bunch of candy from big lots and then go pretend I was at school and go and sell it to the neighbors. You know, it's 10 cents for a candy bar. I'm charging you a buck all day. That's a win for me. And doing that at like 10 years old because it's survival, Right. And then, and then as an adult, recognizing that, you know, you can only be in fight or flight for so long before it completely starts to destroy your life. Right. Well, I mean, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No. Oh, I was just going to say, so throughout this time when you're, you know, going through maybe like some self-destructive behavior, did you have, like, did you ever have a girlfriend? Did you have like a romantic relationship? Girlfriends, girlfriends, let's be clear. Um, 
right and like it, it was about like can i can i from an external source find anyone or anything on planet earth to make me feel special for more than five seconds and chasing that as a high like a drug and and like really recognizing like man i'm running over every person in my path like i would like if I had a time machine, I'd go back and tell every woman I ever went on a date on not to go on a date with me. <laughs> Chron- Fuckboy Chronicles brought to you by the Home Man Chronicles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it but it was like I think for a lot of people who are in that situation, men, women doesn't matter. You're trying to fill this hole for love, not recognizing like you have to do that for yourself first. All day long, all the people in the world are not going to bring you validation if you walk past a mirror and you hate the reflection. Do you think that your relationship with your parents and all the adults in your life allowed or like enabled you to have that kind of disassociated relationship with females in your life or like, you know, whoever your significant other was at the time? Yeah, well, no, it's everybody, right? It's, It's not just intimate relationships is everyone. I was so dissociated because I didn't trust people. How do you trust people when every single time you put your trust into them and they strip it from you and then mm-hmm. they beat you over the head with it, right? And and that was my experience. Every time I'd be minutely vulnerable, there was a consequence. And so I learned how to shut off the human reaction that I had with people. And at one point, I really thought I was a sociopath because I was looking at the things that I was doing and understanding that they did not affect me. I was so dissociated. I didn't cry for 15 years. The day I found out my best friend got murdered, I didn't shed a tear. And this was my best friend. And like that, that carried over into my adult life. And so if you don't have trust in other human beings as a child, why the hell would you have trust in other human beings as an adult? The other side of it too, is like, you look at the environment that I come from and it's very much, and also it's, it's, it's the, the, piss poor side about being a man in Western society is, you know, how many women have you slept with? How many, how many, you know, how can you do these bro things? How can you only talk about sports and, and recognizing the lack of an intimate male figure in my life in a healthy and sustainable way. And like the recognition of those things drove me to do really interesting and what I thought were odd, but now understanding healing things like joining men's group therapy. And going and sitting in this room full of men and, and at that point being the, the youngest by far and having these really complex and beautiful conversations about everything to get to this point where I could start to establish an understanding like I wasn't faulty. I wasn't broken. I just had shit programming. I was only doing to that point what I understood was normal to do. And, and once I started to step into this path of, of healing, you know, it was very much about removing myself from so much of that and spending a lot of time alone and spending a lot of time in this headspace where it was about, can I learn to love myself so I can stop burning down everything around me? And, and that's the missing piece of the puzzle for a lot of people is that they're, they're not yet comfortable with coming to the truth of the reality that they have to figure out how to love themselves. I feel like that's something that is said a lot, but until you are at a point in your life where you're ready to really do some work, it doesn't really mean anything like it in one ear and out the other. I mean, cliche to say at this point, like love yourself, but really truly it's where it all starts. Like it's, 
staying here for forever. But here's the reason why that's like, I hate the phrase love yourself. It's yeah. it's such a throwaway. How about do some hard fucking work and discover something about yourself and earn your own respect, which then turns into love. That's like the truth. That's the formula. It really is. Cause that's how you do it with other humans too. So you got to learn how to do it yourself with yourself. I really like yeah, that. Be patient. That's I have none of that. I didn't either until I, I, I learned to instill it through doing hard things. And now I recognize like, it's the most important thing in my life. Like, can I be patient Yeah, with myself, um, with people, working. with the world? Yep. Definitely working on that too. So from one, from a guru, what kind of guru advice can you give me and anybody else about being fucking patient? I'm, well, I'm definitely not a guru. So let's not do that. <laughs> um, I would say that. You have wisdom experience? Look, I'm just a person that knows some shit, right? (laughs) That's it. That's all I am. Like, think about it. Every valid data point that I have in my life came from another human being, and I distilled it down into a way that works for me that has thus become palatable for other people. That's the way the world works. I don't have a single original idea. That's the way it is, right? And I think that when we look at the world through that scope, it's easy to like remove this idea because that puts me on a pedestal. And I assure you, I am not special and I am not a fucking anomaly. I didn't even graduate high school on time. Okay. So don't be looking for me for that. But I <laughs> yeah, will but say not the star on some fucking special cold case files where the parents <laughs> murdered the son or, you know, the parents. By that much, by that much, you know. And, and you I'll say, give yourself some credit, man. <laughs> I give myself a lot of credit. This, I assure you. But my point being this patience is something that I think involves an understanding that you have to chase something bigger than what you're currently in. And what I mean by that is, are you willing to see it through whatever that thing is? Because I, you know, as I look at this whiteboard next to me with a laundry list of goals and my daily affirmations and all the things that I create to make me, me, you know, the thing about what it is that I'm stepping towards involves so much patience because realistically, I understand that on a long enough timeline, I probably will reach all my goals. The only problem with that is I'm going to be dead before it happens, right? Because I'm trying to create and build something bigger than me. And, and with patience intertwined in that, first off, it was patience in the healing journey because I recognize like if you're going to reprogram 26 years of really dark stuff, it's going to take you more than two or three weeks to figure it out. And so patience started with just giving myself grace, right? Part of it was grace and the other part of it was hope and leveraging the understanding that eventually, if I tried really, really, really hard, this might work. Because think about it. Everyone has done something incredibly difficult that took a long time that they were really dedicated to doing. And on the backside of that, there was a reward and they were willing to suffer the course until that moment. And that's just how I think about everything in life. And the reason why it works for me is because I just don't do stuff that I don't care about anymore, right? If you were like, hey, let's go drink all night, I'm probably not going with you. It's not going to happen, right? If you're like, let's go watch the football game, not interested. You want to sit here and talk about some real shit? Sign me up all day. But I think (laughs) it's about being in line with your wants, needs, interests, values, personal boundaries, and and your identity and and leveraging that to say, I'm just going to go on the path. I'm just going to see what happens. When you were I feel like in my own personal experience that um, 
you just recognize the like step that you've taken forward, not like that you've accomplished something major, you're a completely new person. What it's just like that little nugget of positivity. And I and for me, it's helpful. Like I hang on to the fact that I've actually made a change. I don't have to make all of the changes at one time. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the biggest things people don't do is give themselves accolades and acknowledgements for the hardship that they've done that have made their life better. And right. I wish that we could step into that a little bit more. Um, uh, so actually I was curious, kind of in line with Nicole and your comment, comments right now. So when you were younger, you were forced into being more of an adult and you kind of didn't get to explore your creative side, your artistic side or any side for that matter, that would be other than like adult mode. So as you're going through these changes in your life, are you finding that you're uncovering things about you that you just didn't even know existed about you because you're allowing yourself to be yourself? Um, I would say yes and no, because part of me has always really moved towards only the things that I cared about. Um, that, that comes from being excessively stubborn and recognizing that I had to put certain parameters in my life as, as a child. Um, you know, I loved reading as a kid, loved it. It was my escape. And even as an adult, I read somewhere between 30 to 60 books a year. And, and my creativity is in writing. It's in creating content. It's in like having these kind of conversations. Um, it's in music, it's in listening and playing and discovering it's in, you know, the, the little things and, and. I just move towards the things that I'm curious about and interested about until I stop being curious or interested in them. And, and I try not to tie myself into any of those things particularly too tightly so that I always have the freedom to move about the world in a way that feels in sync with who I am. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that I'm discovering is just what is really interesting, the curiosity to have to write a fiction book and now being, you know, 10 chapters into that thing and thinking about, oh, this might actually be plausible. Whereas before it, did, it didn't feel like a reality for me. So, you know, it's always kind of like just testing the waters and I may wake up in the morning and be like, ah, I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> I just love how much like super control you have at this point. You seem so like laissez-faire about whatever could happen is going to happen. Well, you know, it, it's here, here's what I discovered about control is that it doesn't really work, right? You, you just have to make the effort and hope for the best, but trying to manipulate the world. That's what relationships used to be. That's what conversations used to be. That, that's what work and career used to be. How can I make it bend towards my will? And, and that never has one time in history fucking worked. And so I stopped and I just gave up on it. And I said, okay, let me control the things I can control. How do I show up for myself? How do I move towards my goals? How do I meditate and journal and read the books and go to the seminars and get the certifications and have the important conversations? So, you know, con control is a little bit of the devil. It's a lot of the devil. Yeah, true that. <laughs> Amen. Well, <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is that um, you said you were like recovering from alcohol and drug abuse and it's interesting that relationship that people have with thinking they have some sort of control when they're actually a hundred percent out of control because a drug or alcohol or something is like taking over. So did you face um, some sort of like issues with how do I 
navigate like still having a life or being social or having the friends that I do, but oh, yeah. clean and take control. Yeah, I was you gonna know, ask. I never, I never thought of myself as an alcoholic or an, a drug addict. Um, what, what I always kind of felt was that I was numbing myself because I remember being 12 years old and getting high for the first time and having this experience of, oh man, the world isn't so dark right now. And, and carrying that over and ultimately it just became a crutch. Because, and you know what, and I don't feel like I was ever a functioning alcoholic and I've never, you know, I never tried heroin or crack or prescription drugs or anything like that. It'd just be stoned from dusk till dawn. And like thinking about that and looking, one of the reasons I decided to do things like go to NA and AA is because I just needed to understand. Like I need to understand what it is that brings people to these places because when I was like seven, eight, nine years old, my mother would drag me into those meetings. Like that is not a place for a child to be. And I would sit here and watch and hear her blame her problems on like me and my brothers and thinking about this and being like, what is this? Like, I don't understand. And then discovering like, oh, these were just simply coping mechanisms. I was just burying all that stuff deeper and deeper and deeper. And then I made this decision. I was like, I'm just going to be sober for a while, which was scary because there was a window where 30 days was the longest I had been sober since I was 12 years old. I mean, completely sober. And, and then that turned into a year and then at 1.2 years, and then it's been ebbing and back and forth now and then, you know, because now I think about it, like I will go have and drink with my friends. I don't get blackout drunk. I don't wake up and start drinking. I don't drink during lunch breaks. I don't even really like to drink during the day ever. And, you know, it's something that for me, it, it carries a very, very different weight and significance than it used to because I understand it now and I don't use it as a coping mechanism, excuse me, coping mechanism. You know, it's a celebration. If I'm bummed out, if I'm having a hard day, I don't go to the bottle, <laughs> right? But I, I used to, and that's because I just didn't understand. So the question I had was, do you have any carryover friends from former life to, you know, where you're at now? You know, what's really fascinating about that is no, not really, you know, a couple, I, I've, I have two friends whom I will likely always and forever be in contact with both of whom are from really my teens. We went through, what's really funny about it is we went through that last chance program together and we just kind of bonded over, you know, little boy stuff, you know, fucking wrestling and UFC and stuff like that. We're, we're still great friends today. I was just talking to him today, actually. My friends from my 20s, though, not so much. And I wish it weren't that, but our relationships were totally involved in, and in, in everything was built on the party. Everything was built on the excess. Everything was built on how hard can we go? I mean, even at one point, my, my then best friend, we lived together for seven years. We had a party house. We bought a bus. We, we turned it into a party bus. Like everything was party, 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 party. And then I was like, hey guys, um, by the way, I'm going to go and work on all my trauma. So can you Toodles. support me? And the hard part about that is, you know, I didn't get the support. I didn't get the reach outs. I didn't get the, hey, how you doing? I didn't get the, you know, I'll come visit you. And, and that has been the majority of people. I don't want to ostracize all of my people because there are a couple of them who from that time period still check in on me and they mean the mm -hmm. world to me. And I'm so incredibly grateful for them. But the people who, if you asked me when I was 24, 25, would always be in my life, aren't there. 
right? And I think that's okay. Look, I think people are, are meant to be in our lives in the time period and the frame in which they're meant to be in our lives. And I, I, valid, I validate those experiences and I cherish them and I, I hold no grudges towards these people. We all have to go our own path. And ultimately at the end of the day, if we are meant to intersect again, we will. Did you feel like it was a little bit of history repeating itself though, with not having the support that you needed because you didn't have it from home either? No, because I built my team. Okay. I built my team. I built my, like, here's the thing that I want people to think about. I actually love that question. No one's ever asked that before. I, oh, boom. Boom. Just kidding. <laughs> I put myself in a position of measuring my life against the goals that I wanted to achieve. And then I reverse engineered that down to its easiest common denominator. And from there, I started reaching out and building out support. And that was therapy men's group therapy, massage therapy. I even tried Reiki one time. And then like moving into thing like acupuncture and journaling and meditation and then personal growth and having my own coach and mentor and the whole nine. Because here's the thing. If you're going to be responsible for some things, you have to be responsible for everything. And what I recognize is the only way that I was going to be successful in creating the life that I wanted to have meant that I would have to build this team of people around me. I can't leverage and hope for the idea that someone's going to come down and support me. I've got to go and find it, right? This idea of being trapped in this, this darkness by yourself is self-imposed. There's always support. There's always help. There's always something out there that you can move towards and people who are willing to support you. But if you don't go knock on the fucking door, no one's going to come answer it, right? And so I recognize that and I made a decision, like I'm going to build my own support network. And now I still have that. And I have amazing community and I have all the things that anyone could ever hope to have. And so like, yes, is it sour for lack of a better term that those people whom I loved and cared about kind of let me fade into the darkness? Sure. But what am I going to do about it? Right, exactly. So when, did, when you started to like taper... Did you taper your lifestyle or did you just hard stop and new chapter? It? I, I packed up all my shit. And I moved across the country. I was like, I'm done because here's what happened. I, I tried the tapering thing had happened in spells, right? Because I started getting into sobriety and I'd been going to therapy more and, you know, I'd been trying to work on being a good person across the board and losing weight and eating well and trying to stop smoking and all those things. And it was a trickle down effect. Cause I think if you hard stop all that, you'll probably literally explode. Um, <laughs> and so, and, and so the, there was a moment though, in which I recognized like, Oh, I've hit the point of diminishing returns. If I continue to stay here, drive past the same streets, have the same memories, think about those spots where that thing happened, understand the pain and the pressure of all the experiences of, you know, still being in Indianapolis. Like I, I knew that I had reached my dead end and I, I effectively uprooted my life and I just left because I knew that if I didn't, I was going to peak. And, and I knew that if I did peak at that time, which I mean, that was six years ago, I would be living a very different life right now, probably still miserable and unhappy and destroying everything in my wake. Because I think there's a point in which you, you have to like go into fifth gear and be willing to go down that path. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like you're like, all of this is triggering. So let's 100%. not. That's exactly what it was because I would be doing this work and I'd go to therapy and I go to acupuncture and massage and I'd be like so stressed out and so anxious and so depressed and so whatever that thing was because I'd still have to drive past that neighborhood. 
right? Yeah. I'd still have to remember that time on that corner. I'd still smell the smells of the places that reminded me of the things. And, you know, and, and look, I'll say this too, is I used to think the word triggered was bullshit. I'd be like, what is that? That's for losers. That's for people. And like, duh, of course, like mirror moment, like recognizing <laughs> I was triggered all the time. I was just too afraid to admit it. And, and part of that was just being in that community. I don't think there's anything wrong with leaving the place that you're at. And sometimes it might be necessary. It was for have, me. Have you been back? Twice. And that was to see my brothers. And that's it. Right. Because I, I just don't want to be in that place. Yeah. Um, when you were there, was it a more impactful trigger or was it just like relief that you didn't have to stay there? Oh, my God. I couldn't wait to leave. Like I wasn't triggered, like, and, and it was great to see, see my family and my brothers and the growth that they're on and, you know, looking at their own journeys and just, I was like, man, I'm, give me an hour. Like if I could just have my family here more, you know, that'd be great, but I can't. So, you know, to me, I was like, as soon as I can leave them out, yeah. um, but, but the triggering that the emotional response, you know, I learned not, not necessarily to compartmentalize, me, compartmentalize things, but to take them and put them where they need to go and then understand the impact and yeah. then leverage the tools I have to work through panic attacks and work through anxiety and work through all of the things that start spinning in your mind when you're in that place again. But, you know, I had this very long break and I traveled the world and I lived in all these countries and I looked at things from a different perspective. And, you know, going back there, it was, you know, it was more about I need to show up for them right now. This isn't about me. And on the backside of it, I'm going to go back to my places. I'm going to go back to traveling the world and being a speaker and writing and all that stuff. But for a few moments, I'm going to be a brother. And, and that's what it was. That's a lot of patience you practiced. Yeah. Well, it took a while. <laughs> it took patience. <laughs> I just have um, one question and it might be a loaded question before we get into our Atta Girls, but you um, present yourself in a way where you have taken full acceptance of the fact that you're not responsible for all the shitty shit that happened to you as a kid. And, you know, I've made a shift. But I feel like there's probably some people who haven't come to terms with what happened to them or their trauma, even though it wasn't their fault, they could still be embarrassed by it. Like, how did you just get comfortable being like, I'm just going to tell the world that my life was shitty and they're just going to accept me, you know? Well, I just, right. you know, what? I, I think my superpower really is that I don't give a fuck what people think about me. And, and I don't mean that in a, like, I don't value the people who are valuable to me, but in like the, the general passing by of humans, right? And, and that's become a really potent strength of mine because it's, it is hard to do this. And I get pushed back all the time. Every single day I get hate messages. I really do. I don't understand. Like, fine, whatever, live your best life. Don't care. In the beginning though, what it was, I, I recognized like I had carried this weight of a ton of bricks on my shoulders since I was four years old. And I never had the opportunity to expel it. And it just kind of sat there, just burying me. I felt buried under it. And like five years ago was the first time I publicly had shared anything. And it was no question, a very terrifying moment, right? But in doing that, I got something really, really special. And that was a reflection of understanding from the community because I had people that I've known for a long time reach out to me 
and they said, I get this. I relate. My mother did that. My father did this. I'm on this journey. I feel this. And then it slowly started turning into, um, that post saved my life. That video changed how I think about the world. Can you coach me? I love your book. Come and speak at my event, be on my podcast. And, and the truth about it is this telling the stories never gets easier, but it gets a little easier every time I do. And, and it's just because I don't have to carry the fucking weight of it. It's heavy. It's dark. Like it's with me every single day. And I'll tell you this, I didn't sign up to be the spokesperson for childhood trauma not my job. Don't want it. In fact, my number one goal is to put myself out of business. How do we heal the world to where I become unnecessary? Right. Yeah. Like that'd that's, be nice. the, that's the goal. And, and the only way I know how to do that is by being brutally and unbelievably honest about the truth of how horrible human beings can be. Because if you think about this, we live in a world where if you hit a dog, you're going to jail, you beat the shit out of your kid, meh. What are we going to do about it? And that to me is disgusting. And so how do we create change? And I know the only way we can create change is by raising our voice and telling our stories. I will say this, it's not for everybody. And I don't think everyone has to. If you have a journal, if you have a therapist, if you have a coach, if you have the space to make that stuff exist, it doesn't have to be public knowledge. And I would argue it probably doesn't need to be right? Because there's a lot of pressure and a lot of strain and a lot of stress. The reason that I'm effectively able to do this is because again, I don't care what people think about me. I, how, how much worse is some stranger on the internet going to make my life? I used to be homeless, right? right. And so I, I think about that and I leverage that. And then it's a strength and it's reinforced by the people who reach out to me and they have these conversations and they talk about how much different their life is because of one thing that I happen to say or one experience which became humanized for them because they had that too. And, and that's what, you know, I think that's what keeps me going and continuing to do it because- you know, ultimately, and there are stories I will never share. They're too dark. I, do, I just don't even want it in the ether, right? But the shame and the guilt that are associated with that, to come full circle to answer your question, the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, it doesn't exist for me anymore, but it used to. And right. I needed to work through it. And I needed to understand that I was not culpable for things I can't possibly be responsible for. Yeah. Right. I, the perception that I have is that now you have a very strong story of resilience, which is a much um, more palatable way to perceive what has happened to you and how you're talking about it. Right. I think that anybody's who anybody who has a strong story of resilience is fascinating and interesting and you know, if they want to share it, it's coming from a much more positive place because it is kind of like, you can do it too. It's also yeah, and like, look, go ahead. Pe people want to relate to other people. So knowing that these deep, dark, you know, as society calls them, these deep, dark flaws, brokens, um, we are all broken together in the society. So it's like helpful to hear people like you have a story and because you don't care what other people think, probably because you didn't have the capacity to care when you were younger. Like it, you are helping more people probably than you know. And that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I sit with that. I, I understand that. And, and it's beautiful. And you know, what's really funny is like, I look at my book, I've sold tens of thousands of copies. Nobody posts it online. Why? 
because it's still dark. It's too embarrassing. Child abuse is the elephant in the room of mental health care, especially in America. It affects one in five people, and yet we never talk about it. And statistically, I would beg to differ that it's actually probably higher. And, I would agree. And, and, and nobody posts my book online, rarely if ever. And I love those people that do, but imagine letting someone into your darkest fucking secret. And I would rather you keep that with you. And, and I intentionally kept the title Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma because I wanted people to see it for its true self when they picked it up and they go, oh, this guy gets it. I could have mm -hmm. just called it Think Unbroken, right? And people would carry it in the street and they would walk with me and talk about it, but we don't live in that world yet right? right i think we're definitely getting there because there are people like you who are um so strong in their conviction about you are not broken and yeah. i you know my story as shitty as it is is real and here's an example of how me who is considered broken is actually truly not broken so hell yeah man yeah i'd yeah, carry <laughs> It's communal and we're, we're only going to create change together. There's no other way to do it. Truly. I actually, I just saw something online today. Uh, school had decided to do instead of like a fun day in the fair or whatever, they created like a, like a be an adult day. They gave them an allowance of like $35,000. And then each booth they went to was like home insurance and a car and all this fun stuff. And then the kids who had money at the end, you know, cause they budgeted appropriately they were rewarded with something uh, and the folks and the kids who didn't, you know, were like, you don't have any money left. And this is like the real consequence. And it's like, I'm seeing these things in education finally come to fruition where it's like the kids like us who definitely did not have a great educate educational system are now experiencing an educational system because of the kids who suffered from it. And I think that's a different pattern or like kind of like a pattern we can start to see in the trauma world too, where it's like, we have people who are now able to identify that it's trauma and that this is how it impacted them. And this is the story. And oh, by the way, you can do this too. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. And look, and I'm not an anomaly and I'm not special and I'm not educated except through hard work, going and being the only person in seminars and reading all the books and getting the certifications and digging myself out of this hole first. And, and I think that's what it is. You know, can, can we just make a decision to move forward yes please <laughs> yes and on that note i think it was perfect time to segue into atta girls and talk about some other things that we're proud of so um for me i can go first if you want i don't know if yeah. you have one sarah oh all you oh okay all right well um in the spirit of like i'm just not gonna do stuff that i don't want to do that has been my mantra this week, and it's been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to do it. See, I mean, I'm still like showing up to work. It's not like I'm just like never mind. Like I, but in in regards to how much effort I'm putting into some things with work that would have that could possibly have gone unnoticed, so there was no point. Like I'm recognizing sooner, like where to spend my energy, which is really great. I think. I think I've kind of got the same sort of thing, but it's in the patience category. <laughs> um, my Atta girl, like I have no patience and it, and it doesn't mean like for other people, it's just like, I inherently want to get through things as quickly as possible because I'm always, my mind is in overdrive and I'm always thinking about the next thing that can happen. And so I've started to really just sit with 
the fact that I have to wait for my cup to be filled with water at the refrigerator and I can't really do anything other than that. I don't check my phone. I just sit with myself in the water and the glass and letting it fill. And that's difficult for me because there's all kinds of stuff happening in my brain and I want to go and do and act on it, but I'm not. So that's been my, that's my cat. That's been my week. (laughs) Matt, that I need patience for that too. (laughs) So Michael, anything in particular that you want to point out besides the, this basically whole episode? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, other than my whole life, um, (laughs) look, look every, every day, look, we have to, I am a proponent of, Look, I how do I say this quickly? I think a lot of people let the word ego be in their way of celebrating their victories. And I am all about my ego. And every single day that I show up for myself, I feel good about that. And I don't want to hide it. And I don't want to like sweep it under the rug because every day is hard. Every single day it's hard. And the one thing that I know is like, I'm proud of myself for showing up every single day with clarity, with intention, with purpose and with drive, because, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was chilling in bed, not doing shit with my life. And now looking at it in a very different scope and recognizing that the number one thing that I can do is just live my life on my terms. And I'm proud of that every day. Yeah, that's amazing. So tell people where they can find you, get your book, et cetera. Yeah, um, I'm on all the social medias at Michael Unbroken. That's across the board. Um, my book and information on coaching is at thinkunbroken.com. And every Tuesday and Thursday, I release a new episode of the Michael Unbroken podcast on all the places. Yee! I like that. That was very succinct. <laughs> that's, that's your attaboy from me to you. Good job on on uh, all your stuff's there. So you can find us on Instagram at homance underscore chronicles and, you know, go to um, thinkunbroken.com to learn more about Michael. And if you liked what you heard today, please rate, review, subscribe, uh, tell your friends about it. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show and being willing to share and showing up every day. (laughs) Yeah. And like, thank you. I'm, I'm grateful. Well, I'm grateful for like the good, honest, you know, it's not a black and white. It's a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to continue that. So thank you for that too. Yeah. Anytime. All right. All right. We'll